Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's guest is David Aranovich, one of the most gifted writers in the country and presenter of Radio 4's Briefing Room. He's done so much in his career and we talk about a lot of it, but also just his experience of being a journalist, particularly his experience of being a journalist with centre-left views. Effectively, what I mean is being someone who was pro-Blair at that time working at The Guardian, just to make it absolutely clear where this is going, um, as well as what the role of journalism is, whether he'd ever stand for politics or not, for, for parliament or not, whether he was ever interested in being a politician, but also what the life of a journalist is and what his life is now and what mediums suit his work. Now, he started a substack because his writing is absolutely superb. And for me, he's the closest thing we've got to Christopher Hitchens. And we talk about this. And David's, as you would expect, a huge fan of his too. But you have to subscribe to his substack because the writing is superb. So I've I've put a link to it that you can click on and subscribe. But it's davidaranovich.substack.com. I'll do that again. It's davidaranovich.substack.com. And you just and we talk about this as well, the difference um, where he's effectively writing with a level of freedom he's never had before and um, whether he prefers that or not. But a whole load of things we talk about. Now, just to let you know, some of the guests at the future live shows on Monday, the 22nd of May, my guest is David Blunkett. That will be the first show back after the local elections. That will be absolutely phenomenal with a, with a true Labour heavyweight. On Monday the 5th of June, a very rare interview with the former Conservative Chancellor, Philip Hammond. On Monday the 19th of June, an even rarer interview with the first woman to lead the Labour Party. No woman obviously has ever been elected to lead the Labour Party yet. We all wait for the day that happens. But the first woman to lead the Labour Party, of course, after John Smith's uh, sad passing was Margaret Beckett, who also stood in the 1994 leadership election. On Monday, the 3rd of July, my guest is the phenomenal comedian Joe Lysett, uh, who, of course, you'll have seen from uh, not just his wonderful work on telly, but a lot of his activism as well. And we've got some other guests to book in the intervening uh, months. But just to let you know, on the 2nd of October, um, again, I, I just want to try and broaden the net a bit and, and get, as well as politicians and broadcasters, um, people who are interested in politics and vocal about it. And I'm very excited. On the 2nd of October, my guest is the lead singer of the Sleaford Mods, Jason Williamson, uh, who is really into his politics, is very vocal, whose lyrics are inherently satirical. And very, I mean, the new album, UK Grim, is not only very funny and great music, it's also a real piss take of the country and the state we're in so um and the people in charge so that will be something really different and uh, they're, they're such a great outfit the sleepford mod so to, to have jason on is going to be a real privilege um but 
Um, on to today's guest, who is, uh, I mean, talking of, of a privilege to interview David Aranovich, um, obviously someone who I've been a fan of for just such a long time. And we talk about why, um, I guess, people like he and I, who consider ourselves to be of the centre ground and that to be where the majority view of Britain is, or that's where at least um, where um, people are, I guess, prepared to vote for uh, parties that appeal there. Um why in the last few years, or certainly in the Corbyn Johnson era, there wasn't really a major... Now, of course, the, there was the Lib Dems, I accept that, but why the two major parties didn't go there um, and why we effectively sort of politically made to look in a way kind of remote from the mainstream, even though um, that's where the weight of opinion is out in the country. Anyway, anyway, I will stop prattling on because David is a far superior talker to me and um well let's enjoy the interview with the phenomenal david aranovich i'm delighted to be joined by david aranovich uh, david as you'll no doubt be aware we've just passed the 26 year anniversary of new labor coming to power uh, on the 1st of may 1997 which means it is the 16 year anniversary of your fantastic documentary the blair years um, have you reflected on that documentary series at all in, in the last few days? God, is it 16 years? Um, do you mean the one I did, the ones I did with Blair? Yeah. Was that 16 years ago? 2007, 2007, yeah. 2000, yeah. Uh, it was really... Do you know, you know this perfectly well, which is that time exists in different kind of dimensions. So, for example, if I tell you when they, you know, what was the number one one year at one year, and say, is this the same year or a different year to this movie? You won't get it right. It's you'll think they're ten years out and so on. So we kind of exist on different sort of uh, timelines, really different kind of bits of us. Um, uh, I've reflected upon it a lot. I mean. Uh, not least because this year was also the um, uh, the 20th anniversary of the Iraq invasion. And that involved me. Uh, one of the problems about journalists like me is we take ourselves seriously. So we think it actually matters what we say, or at least we have to kind of treat it like it matters what we say. So deciding shortly after I'd gone to The Guardian, actually, from The Independent, that I was going to be one of the people who said yeah i want to see sudan taken out really um taken down and that being i think probably in many ways the most traumatic's a bad word really but i suppose the most difficult part of my writing career uh, to reflect upon then in 2007 um which is only actually you know four years later to be talking it through with a Blair who was just leaving office. Or, or, I can't remember whether that particular interview he had just left on. And I'd been off to interview Hans Blix on an island in, in Sweden. And I'd interviewed all the kind of leading civil servants who had by then, um, who had by then left about what had happened and about the decision-making process. And then Blair himself, um, and then I got a very, very bad write-up by uh, Rachel Cook in the New Statesman to say that you know, this person, this was not a safe interview in this person's hands because he didn't ask the right questions. And I thought, well, actually, funnily enough, I feel I was one of the very few people who did actually ask the right questions. But because they weren't predicated on the assumption 
that Blair was uh, a slightly evil, demonic, messianic figure, but were actually to try and get inside the problems that he was having with that decision. You know, Bush is going to go to war anyway. Um, Blair is genuinely convinced that there is a danger of a kind of rogue state um, uh, terrorist mashup in the wake of 2001, with that meaning that WMD gets into the hands of the Osama bin Ladens and so on. Um, and then he has, so then as he explains it to me, he has a hierarchy of options um, going from uh, the best to the worst. The best is that the United Nations agrees that Saddam is in breach of uh, of the agreements um, and threatens him with the United Nations um, force response. The best option of which is he gives he he backs down uh, and maybe is replaced in Iraq. So that was Blair's kind of top option. Uh, no, in, in other words, no invasion necessary. Uh, the next one was, yeah, an invasion might be necessary because he doesn't do that, but the United Nations agrees with it and go, kind of goes ahead. Um, the worst option was not to do anything, was effectively to kind of leave him in place because of what they thought was going to happen. The next worst option was that the Americans would go in alone and without any kind of uh, support. And, the, and around about the middle was you get a resolution from the UN somehow or other and the coalition goes in and that's a kind of and that's a kind of middle option and so on. And then he said to me this thing, which was in the end, he said, at the point where the UN refused to take any kind of second resolution, he said, I found myself in a constituency without me, without any other people in it, essentially. Um, Bush was going to go ahead anyway. There was no kind of question about that. The UN wasn't going to come on board. It was going to be an invasion, and this was not the kind of preferred option, and so on. Um, now, since then, we've had Chilcot and uh, and Sir Lawrence and others have gone into this in sort of a huge and granular detail about you know the intelligence and what sh should and shouldn't have been said, and so on. None of which, incidentally, ever amounted to the issue, uh, the question of Blair lying to the people about things. But you know, let's leave aside that kind. You know. What is it? Four to five inquiries, all of which, this, you know, concluded that there were that the issue was not one of lying, uh, etc. And still, nevertheless, people had this kind of view. So it's a long-winded way of saying that when you get to um, that this anniversary and also the anniversary of New Labour, um, and this strange situation whereby Thatcher is still lauded, one of the most successful conservative prime ministers in terms of elections uh, of recent history, is lauded by her party. You know, sort of, you know, it, it almost kind of, you know, I, I joke that maybe you've whitewashed over the icons in that room you're in. But if you were in Conservative Party headquarters, there probably would be an icon of Mrs. Thatcher up there and they kind of keep it up. Whereas if there'd ever been a portrait of Blair um, in Labour Party headquarters, it was put in the corner into the in, you know, kind of shelf behind the you know the cistern in the unused loo for the last um, for the last twenty years or so, however long it is. So, um, and that is a kind of paradox. And Iraq has an awful lot to do with that. But I think without Iraq, probably Blair would have been seen by Labour as by ordinary Labour people over those years as being a successful Prime Minister. Um, you know, there would have been the left. Would never have liked him but other people would have done so yeah it, you know and, and i thought i thought gosh uh, 20 years i should kind of write all this up and i thought i i just can't bear it really 
Um, Why not? It, you know, it becomes a kind of point because you know what you're going to get. And people aren't, most people are just not going to read it. You know, they're just not going to look at it. They're just, you know, I see people I really like, people I really admire in every other way, who nevertheless, when they make an utterance about this, do it in the kind of, in the most kind of throwaway, condemnatory way. As if when uh, uh, Saddam Hussein was overthrown, the person who'd been overthrown was a kind of rather kind of mild-mannered semi-autocrat who was, you know, probably thinking about reforms and in comes the Americans and they kill everybody and, and so on. You know, none of that happened. But uh, and, and so you think, I don't want to end up having endless arguments about things that happened 20 years ago with people I like. <laughs> um, I know it's cowardly. It is cowardly. It is. You know, somebody should do it. Um, and then you think, yes, somebody should do it. Um, and nobody is. And that nobody looks like including me. Just thinking about your not role in the war, obviously, but just your view on it and what it was like to be a journalist in the space that you were in at that time, did you feel effectively the opprobrium of your colleagues? Because there was definitely a sort of element of, I don't want to use the word groupthink, but there's consensus around on, on the liberal left that uh, this was a huge mistake from the outset. And, and certainly the Guardian was very, very vocal in attacking Tony Blair for it. Um, was there a sense that in a way you were unusual for taking a more nuanced view? Um, <laughs> it's kind of, it's, I was hugely unpopular at the Guardian for taking this view and I don't, and I hadn't arrived that much earlier, actually. The, the thing before, at the end of 2002, when I was on the independent, I was still saying, I was still writing that I, that war is such a big thing that you really, really want to kind of be careful about it. But at the same time, I'd been really aware of how the necessary the sanctions I saw necessary against Saddam Hussein were actually gradually falling apart because they'd been there for so long and a very effective propaganda campaign against sanctions and so on, which is forgotten now. Um, uh, and I could see that this was beginning to come to an end. And then um, I, I moved to The Guardian and somebody said to me, a friend of mine said to me, um, you know, you're sounding just like John Pilger, really, you know, refusing to kind of take a, a stance on this. And I kind of thought that one over. Um, I thought, well, maybe I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of dancing around here, uh, uh, around what m may happen. And then I said to myself, given what I think about Saddam Hussein and given the people I've known who've suffered under Saddam Hussein's regime, uh, British-based Iraqis who knew quite well, uh, and so on, and others, if it does come to the point of there's an invasion to get rid of him, you know, am I really going to oppose that? And I thought, well, I can't oppose that. But if I'm not going to oppose it, what am I going to do? Say, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You know, where's that kind of column? I mean, do I do a kind of Boris Johnson and write two columns, one in favour and one against it, etc.? Um, you got to, you know, in the end, you've kind of got to decide. And that was unique enough, or kind of unusual enough, particularly since I was working on the Guardian to to get a bit of attention. I remember as we were coming going towards um, the moment of invasion when it became really and and the debates in the Commons and so on. The Guardian used to have these gigantic editorial meetings 
where virtually everybody used to turn up, you know, uh, except people who had actually have work to do. Uh, and at the Guardian in those days, that meant there was an awful lot of people who could just kind of turn up. And honestly, you could have cut the bloody atmosphere with a knife. It was, for, for me, it was, whoa. You know, it was not collegiate, to say the very least. Um, I, I'm not saying by that that any pressure was put on me by the editorial st- uh, by the editorial staff to change my mind. It wasn't at all. That's not true. Um, but it certainly didn't do me any good with my colleagues. <laughs> well, people were dying in Iraq, really. So whether or not I was having a slightly kind of, you know, itsy-bitsy, problematic time with horrid looks in, you know, in, in, in what was then uh, off the Barrington Road didn't seem to be that important. Um, but it was a very unpopular. But the one thing it did make me realise in the next kind of six months, a year afterwards, as I was kind of slam, 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 slam. And also from, you know, I, I, I always remember when John Kempfner was the political editor, I think, of the New Statesman, he wrote a big article about, um, in this context, about the, the new neoconservatives. Uh, and I was one of them. And I was absolutely frigging furious um, I've never been a conservative of any kind, let alone a neoconservative. Uh, uh, and, and and in order to be able to do this, he had to uh, he had to kind of construct a set of beliefs for me, almost none of which I held. Uh, and I just thought, ah, I've been ex- I've been excommunicated. I've been formally excommunicated. Uh, when I went to the Times, somebody I won't uh, uh, say uh, uh, because I think he sort of, I don't think he really thought it through, said to me, oh, um, uh, uh, he said, um, so you must be very pro-Israel. I said, well, not particularly. He said, well, I always assumed, he said, you know, given your name, et cetera, that that's why you supported the war in Iraq. He was being totally kind of innocent. And I thought, what? Yeah, people, there were a lot of people thought, that essentially, I mean, don't forget the the kind of accusations about why people go to war. I mean, the most obvious one was uh, uh, Bush's poodle, and that was the closest to the truth. It was a it was a negative description of an actual thing, which was Blair's belief that you couldn't let America go into a war like this without allies, that it would be disastrous for American uh, isolationism, uh, you know, or, or unilateralism rather. Um, and that was very much his. That was very much his kind of view. Um, but the Blair's, but the Bush's poodle, nevertheless, that if you like was a kind of negative vision of the same proposition. Um, but all the others were: we wanted Iraq's oil, we didn't, um, uh, or we did it for Israel. Um, and there was a lot of uh, people who saw, you know, Israel has pushed people I- I- into this war. That's always been, you know, this did this didn't arise with Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, this has been around for quite a long time. Comes out of the closet from time to time. Has done for fifty years. Just thinking about the Guardian, uh, and maybe a bit, a bit the New Statesman, but obviously you wrote the Guardian around that time because it is fascinating. You know, I grew up. And, and as you know, our politics are similar, if not identical. But when I was growing up, the Guardian it was exposing cash for questions. It was um, it was it seemed to be a great ally of the Lawrence family in the wake of Stephen Lawrence's murder. And it it felt like it was a newspaper that was really doing things and doing very important things. And as a young left wing activist, I thought, wow, this is like the best newspaper on the planet. And then. Sort of 10 years later, I was just horrified at its coverage of Iraq, of the way it was effectively telling people to vote for the Lib Dems in 2005. And then 
everything that happened since and, and, and even recently in the way that it has effectively tried to slightly cultivate Corbynism and certainly tolerate it, I was completely horrified by it. Now, I don't know if that is just an expression of things that have happened and were happening on the left or whether there is something specific within the culture of the newspaper that, that led to that. I think it's certainly true that in certain kind of key ways, the Guardian, the Guardian's readership became more left-wing over some of those years, uh, maybe slightly more isolated, and the Guardian responded to that. It wasn't universal, you know. You have Johnny Friedland, Martin Kettle, and various various others working at the Guardian. There was, however, um, even by two thousand and three, that kind of I don't know, that sort of belief that if you held a general meeting and people got very cross, then they must be right. You know, it was sort of, it's a strange thing. It's a strange thing to say, the kind of desire on the part of the grown-ups, if you like, not to fall afoul of that kind of vigour and, um, uh, uh, and drama. But also, it it completely incentivizes performative politics. Yeah, there was a fair bit of what you might call performative politics in some of those meetings, I thought. I mean, it was just... uh, uh, the There had always been... I mean, when we talk about the kind of anti-imperialist strain, I mean, we see... We know what an awkward position it is or centre-left people, and to a certain extent centre-right people, in politics now, now that it's uh, in the period of polarisation. Because if you say that their position was anti-imperialist, it was anti-imperialist in the context of there being pretty much no more empires. Um, And therefore what they were really talking about was something else, which was whether or not Western countries had a significant responsibility in the world um, other than the simple one of providing aid. Um, uh, Now when you talk talk about anti-imperialism now, what you seem to be saying is that you're opposed to those people on the right who've cropped up, (laughs) for whom you cannot, you know, who... Who you kind of feel actually really think, but will never say that slavery was not such a terrible thing as it's been made out to be. <laughs> you know, you kind of, you know, you kind of suspect this about some of them. And what they really want to say is, look, you know, at least everybody knew that, you know, where they were with slavery. <laughs> there's a there, there's there's a slight tendency in the moment amongst some sections of the political right to say things like. Uh, and I can't remember who, which one of them has actually said this, which is um, the feminism has sold a lie to the world by saying that what women really want to do is work 90 hours for Goldman Sachs and leave their children, etc. But that's not what that person means, is it? Because most of them aren't working 90 hours at Goldman Sachs, etc. What they actually mean is feminism has sold people the notion that women might quite like to go out and work. And it's been bad for families, and I, but I don't really quite dare say that. So I kind of put it in this other way, really, and kind of and, and do it that way. Anyway, um, uh, so it's an awkward. So we find ourselves in this kind of rather strange position, and it's and it's at the same time 
as this apps, I was just reading an article. I can't remember. I think was it the Nation um, about um, uh, McIntyre versus Rorty on the question of liberalism, um, uh, 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 be, largely because and, and the piece was right because the attack on liberalism is so multifaceted and comes from every bloody direction etc um liberals are held to be and liberalism is held to be to blame for just about everything and everybody kind of gets a kind of fair tilt at it despite the fact that without liberalism none of them get a tilt at anything i mean it's sort of it's a kind of weird contradiction really (laughs) and so but you know we'll use liberalism to get you know on top and then when we're on top we'll stop the other side talking (laughs) okay (laughs) you know again you're not just a gifted writer, but a, a, a really talented at creating an argument and a, and a position. That you remind me so much of Christopher Hitchens. I, I don't know if he was a, an idol of yours or whether you would um, uh, be flattered by the comparison or not. I, I'd be flattered, um, but I he's so much a better writer than me. I mean, just you know, kind of. I look at his stuff and think, oh God, <laughs> and here's me doing what I kind of do. He. It, I mean, I think I would be more likely to be right more often than Christopher Hitchens, but only on the kind of margins. Um, but as um, as someone who had read widely, 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 um, which Christopher Hitchens did, took part in arguments, and how as chap can win a major debate when he's actually three sheets to the wind? God alone knows. I mean, half a glass of red wine, and I can't even think um so i don't say that i necessarily admire that kind of uh that kind of thing but nevertheless it's true he he was fabulous to listen to although i was a present at one debate where he called the dixie chicks a bunch of old slags and i thought you know christopher i think we could really do without that because we disagree with them but really but that was you know that was kind of kind of slightly the booze talking but in in writing terms it's in terms of his sheer vigor and vim and humor you know in my last substack um i've just included that famous quote of his from hit 22 about you know whenever some you hear some blowhard talking about sodomy etc you can be absolutely certain that you're counting down the days till they're found in some cheap motel room being paid with an an old credit card to be peed on by an apache transvestite um Maybe I wouldn't have written it quite like that, et cetera, but I also certainly couldn't write it anything like so well. He was incredible. Honestly, there are reasons for him being a kind of writing hero. I mean, I, I met him a few times and also interviewed him a couple of times for, 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 for programmes and appeared in debates with a couple of times with him. Um, and um, it was it was a fantastic thing to be, and it was an incredible shame that we lost him so early. I mean, what you both share is, you know, a, a mega talent for writing, for constructing arguments, just the, the pleasure of reading your uh, view, whether I agree with it or not. Uh, it, it, you know, they're the sort of things that, that you and Hitchens give to the world. Do you think there is a, a, a public desire for writers like you and Hitchens? You know, why? It was one thing I never understood. It's just so much pleasure to read this stuff. This should be like mass market. writers like you should be megastars. Well, I'm not quite sure how I would take to uh, megastardom. I mean, uh, at my height, 
um, somebody would say hello to me in the street. In fact, they still do kind of once every week, once every two weeks. And I thought this is just about right for me. Um, this is kind of I can kind of I can kind of take this. Um, uh, uh, this um, actually, the truth is, I mean, you know, I've um, I've left the Times and I've set up the Substack. Getting significant numbers of readers over to the Substack is a is a really long an arduous process and i don't really think i've cracked it yet so a month into the substack i've got seven thousand four hundred um unpaid subscribers and after all they don't even have to pay you know but this is only still seven thousand four hundred that is not a mass market matt um and no but that's because uh, because i think i guess the point i was making was if 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 Writers like your work was more prominent. Now, I guess in even uh, not that the Times is a niche publication, but it, it, there should be, you know, there, there should be a public desire to read good quality argument making in the same way that you should want to listen to the charts or watch, uh, you know, the match of the day. That it's that level of pleasure that it gives people who really enjoy it. And I wonder if, in a way, in keeping it in newspapers is is kind of restrictive. It, you know, the internet may eventually set it free, but. I, I, I don't know. I just think there's there's such a treat to reading a really well thought through argument. Well, I mean, of course, um, since two thousand and seven, at the times went behind the paywall, um, many many fewer people could read what I write, and uh, and it is slightly frustrating, and it was slightly well, slightly frustrating, but you got used to it because it was a necessity to think that all this stuff for anybody you know. No, let's name the Owen Jones figure. Um, the Owen Jones could get read for free by just about everybody, etc. And my my stuff wasn't. Of course, that's true. Um, it was it was part of the price you paid. It was part of the price the subscribers paid. Also, it would have been possible, I think, for me to kind of carve out a personality on Question Time and other programs if I was willing to do it. You know, as gradually the the element of confrontation became more and more important in pundit programs, etc. But I just decided I didn't... It's not so much I just didn't like them. I didn't. I didn't... I didn't like myself in them. It wasn't a person I liked who appeared on them trying to get one over on the on the other. I, I wanted to... I increasingly wanted to try and get as close as I could to what I thought or what we could think might be the case or true or an interesting discussion, and you found yourself increasingly just sidelined into a kind of battle of preposterous um, sound bites, you know, curated to get a bit of applause uh, from an audience in, I don't know, barking or wherever. I'm not knocking the audience in barking, you know, they're the people after all who turn up to that kind of thing, and that's better than, that's better than a lot of the alternatives, but the movement of discussion programs towards just people smacking each other over the head. I just wasn't interested. So I think that was slightly kind of open. And then there were so many bits of punditing you could do, Matt. And a lot of a lot of younger journalists have to do it because otherwise they don't get known. You know, endless bloody paper reviews on endless talk shows you know there's a kind of proliferation of 24-hour stations with people yabbling on you know and, and and doing the thing which is absolutely inevitable which is 
having to become more and more dramatic about what they're yabbling on about because you know ever more uh, what's the word um whatever whatever it was just just not inauthentic both inauthentic um and getting further and further away. i mean it's no surprise to me that one of the favorite people for all programs i have on it is peter hitchens since we've talked about his brother Peter Hitchens gets on all these programmes by having become more and more preposterous and more and more certain. He's actually a very nice guy himself. But his arguments are stupid, you know, increasingly kind of stupid, etc. But he does that, he provides with such kind of absolute certainty and fury, etc., that it becomes quite compelling to watch. So, you know, you know, it's like kind of endless death scenes from the Duchess of Malfi, etc., being your kind of main form of theatre, uh, really. Um, Do you think rather than say perilous state as a result? I mean, there are still great writers, obviously. Alex Massey at the Times is fantastic, and Ewan McColm. You know, we could list off the, the great writers that we all love to read, uh, particularly on politics. But that sort of culture, and it's exactly why I don't do those shows anymore, is that it, it was primarily because I didn't like the version of myself I became on them that basically became humorless and you just you're forced and it basically becomes the coliseum where you're forced to basically fight to the death (laughs) it's not how these things should be and it just it shows everyone in a terrible light and i just wonder if tv in particular seems to be addicted to that sort of format now yeah i think it is i think i think the idea i mean the, the whole the whole phrase i'll get my popcorn in other words, there's going to be a fight. I don't, I don't care. I don't care what the argument actually is. I don't care whether I can find out anything or learn anything or emerge from this actually a, a more knowledgeable person or a better understanding. I just want the fight. You know, so you're right. It's the Colosseum. It's the kind of gladiatorial thing, and it just began to, began to infect, infect everything. So it would it would it would pop up in Newsnight even. You know, you thought uh, one of the things I do. My fate, well, one of the main things I do now is present for radio for the briefing room. One, I don't have to have an opinion at all. I just find out stuff from people who are really kind of well qualified to uh, to tell me about stuff. I discover things. I discover what's going on. And it's really great that there are these kind of, you know, like or more or less rather kind of programs like this analysis uh, or radio four programs. Um, in which you, in which the fight is not the thing, it's not the thing. So I, I just I think the other thing, the whole, have... you know, as a viewer or a listener, I, I just find that sort of thing repellent. I would far rather listen to, uh, you know, it, it, I don't mind having both sides of an argument on, but I would far rather listen to it were it not so combat. There are times when it has to be if, if something, you know, if a failure has happened or whatever or scandal. But on the whole, I actually think it's a, it, they've totally misunderstood what, what viewers want. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe these things get better numbers as a result. But I can't help feeling, actually, they've misjudged their customers' views. Um, yeah. I mean, we always hope, really, that things we don't like, other people won't like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, totally, it's kind of gone quite natural. I have to say, you know, it's a bit like looking down at the most viewed on the BBC website. And you think, really? <laughs> you know? It's like my wife, Sarah, uh, ex-panorama journalist, is continuously looks at the Mail Online. 
Um, and consequently, quite often, though she doesn't believe it, the first port of call about what a story is comes from that. It drives me bonkers. But that is that is a highly addictive website, the mail, for, for sports, celebrity gossip, the way it, it's sort of a mixture of news and entertainment, really like nothing else in this country. And it's huge in America. Yeah, absolutely huge. Yeah. I mean, I only hope that they can't, you know... I mean, I imagine. I like to imagine that soon it'd be replaced by Chat GPT versions of the. Mail. I don't think you'd realise the difference. I mean, well, it wouldn't matter, would it? It wouldn't matter. You know, you just kind of ask it to set up. Um, what is a likely sex story involving these two celebrities, <laughs> you know, involving these five celebrities, and so on, and just kind of churn them out. And did really. did that? Sort well, of we should do that, for... shouldn't we? Do you think that the pressure for confrontation or, or, or that sort of effectively devaluing of quality journalism, I mean, has that happened at places like The Times as well? Well, look, I mean, I was looking at my own kind of substack and looking at what it is that I've covered. Now, the thing I feel most strongly about at the moment, has been for some time, is the way in which the people arriving by boats have become the Conservative and the right wing's sole go-to thing because there's nothing else for them to go to you know they've effed everything else up etc and they have actually effed this up as well but they think that there's some advantage to be got from it so i feel very strongly about it so uh, a number of the posts that i've got in my substack so far are this but but i'm really interested in looking at what i haven't managed to cover at all i've not done anything on economics i've not done anything on future complex policy on areas like education why? No one will read it. I think. I mean, I'll have to. I'll have to kind of tackle it. Somebody very nice has just said to me uh, on Twitter. It's a really good sub Substack. Uh, when will you be covering the trans issue? And I thought, okay, everybody covers the bloody trans issue. I mean, are we? Do we think to ourselves, oh? Do you know what I haven't heard anybody discuss recently? The trans issue. That's what. <laughs> yeah, I think that's being... your take on it, don't they? In a way, when people get into a writer and they're trying to find their way into a debate, particularly something like the trans debate, which I think most people just are sort of amazed at how big it's become, in a way, they'll look for someone they like, like you, and they'll say, I wonder what David Ranovich's take is on it. And that will, inf that will help them. In a way, they're looking for guidance. Yeah, I guess that's right. I guess that's partly right. But I also think that to a certain extent, people are looking for uh, <clears throat> for vindication of their own already formed views. Um, so give me some ammunition, will you, to sling at the other side? By the way, I'm not against that. I mean, when it comes to dealing with kind of things like conspiracy theories and, you know, kind of that kind of thinking, I believe in providing the ammunition. I think it's really important. I mean, Matthew Sweet's brilliant job on GB News, which for those of your um, uh, uh, viewers and listeners who haven't haven't caught about it, it's just bloody heroic. You know, he's actually forced Ofcom to take a line on their spreading malign conspiracy theories. Brilliant. So you do need people to do that job. But I tell you what, it's bloody exhausting. You know, having done part of it for a while. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. What do you make of Labour now, then, under Starmer? And what do you make of him? Well... It's kind of odd, really, isn't it? I mean, because like everybody, like everybody else, my my thinking about him has gone through an evolution. And the first thing I should say is I don't know him, you know. So this is not based on any kind of. Um, I know people who do know him. Um, it's quite interesting, really, because he, the commentariat, don't like him, do they? Let me just don't like him. He gets a hard time. Um, well, they just don't like him. They don't warm to him. There's some somehow or other. He's not got. I don't know whether it's because he's, you know, not had an affair with his secretary or something like that. He so he really kind of needs to do something to provide a little bit more sort of roundedness, etc. And nobody's really been able to get him on anything, um, uh, which is not kind of political and uh, and so on. So I don't quite know what it is. I mean, uh, or maybe it's simply because his delivery is very kind of quite what I can describe as John Majorish really you know he has that kind of you know he doesn't have the perfect voice for uh, uh, vocal performance I imagine you know he was obviously quite good in court etc but in a a particular sort of a register um, he has a slightly kind of plaintive sound which Given that you know most of the people in in the kind of Fleet Street politics things were, if not physical bullies at school, were actually probably verbal bullies at school uh, and so on. So, which kind of invites them onto him in order to. Uh, the other thing is, it it it's a kind of tone from which you in which you don't lean in, you lean out. Tony Blair was very good at making you think he was confiding in you. Uh, and so on. Shirley Williams was the best at this, by the way. So it doesn't necessarily go along with the most successful politics. Um, but uh, unfortunately, somebody like Donald Trump is is like that. It's the it's. I mean, you must know this because you do quite a lot of performance, Matt. It's the way of talking that makes somebody lean gradually towards you to listen. Yeah, I've never and, mastered it. <laughs> Yeah, I think you have, and and uh, and and Keir Starmer's performance is such that the more he kind of gets agitated about something, the more you kind of go backwards. So it's almost like, and and yet you know that he's not actually like that because people who know him tell you he's like that, and being able to deliver um, speeches as if 
you are doing a one-to-one with somebody sometimes is really kind of important. So I don't know whether it's partially that. So, we're, I, I, so, I, so, so what I've been talking about here is actually the um, uh, you may th- you might you might think the least significant aspect of the question, the answer to the question that you you, you asked me. So, um, at the twenty nineteen election, um, I was one of those people uh, who. Uh, was arguing strongly for a third-party vote, knowing in my heart of hearts that it probably wouldn't happen, but feeling, you know, kind of Martin Luther-like, here I stand, I can do no other. Um, You know, I wrote before the 2019 election that in the case of Johnson and Corbyn, was the only case I could remember of the two major candidates for prime minister, both being people who I knew I would do a better job of being prime minister then. You know, I just knew I would make a better prime minister than either Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn, and I would make a shit prime minister, uh, uh, and so on. Um, uh, but in the case of Corbyn, you know, he, uh, if, if, there was no chance of him becoming prime minister. But if he had, can you imagine how the Ukraine thing would have played out? And we know what a catastrophe Johnson's been because we tried that. Um, um, so I found it really difficult watching, including some good Labour people that I knew, who had to go through the 2019 election pretending that they thought that a Labour victory would be anything other than catastrophic when they knew the difference. And that is, if you like, the roughest calculation in politics. I sacrifice the the short term for what I hope will happen in the longer term. I mean, I really, really do. And I I perjure myself in order to get through this phase. So um, during a lot of the Corbyn era, he and Hillary Benn were almost the only hopes you had left within the Labour Party. Uh, But they were... You know, Corbyn was there. He was dreadful. He took over. He got his majority on the NEC. You know, when you lose the leadership of something, you lose everything, really. Like losing the presidency. There's no kind of halfway house there. You're not, you're in or you're out. And once you're out, the other side's people come in in spades, etc. And everything can be undone that you did. Um, and that's exactly that's exactly what happened. So... I can see the argument that said, well, if you were going to do that, it would also make perfect sense when trying to get the leadership in the immediate aftermath to tell the broad swathe of the party what it is that's most likely you get elected, even if you know, really, that you're going to have to undo half of it. So we've had all this business this week about reneging on the pledge on student loans it was always going to have to be reneged on you know (laughs) i wrote that ages ago i wrote it before nick clegg made his infamous promise before the 2010 election you will regret this if you ever come into power because you can't do it it won't be your party you'll need to be able to do something else You've still got to kind of fund these increasingly large universities, etc. And 
Two things, you need to cut the universities away from government deciding how many students go to university, what you used to call numerous clauses, which is grotesquely unfair because it meant you could get to university one year on the same uh, qualifications, the next year you couldn't. That's what that meant. So there he goes into this, and kind of like all politicians these days, he has to have five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten pledges. I don't know, I think Tony Blair started all this stuff. That was always five. five pledges. It was always five. Well, th that was the Blair thing, wasn't it? It was five. I think Keir Starmer had ten. No, I think Tony Blair had ten at one stage. Did he? I think at the October party conference before the election, I think he had ten. Oh, uh, certainly more than five. And then... I'm right, I but think. I think they then got limited by how many mugs you could produce with different stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I've still got I've still got Ed Miliband's um Controls on Immigration. Controls on Immigration's mug because I hated it so much. <laughs> because who was ever gonna vote for Labour on the basis that they were tougher on immigration than the Tories, for God's <laughs> sake? You know, so you just surrendered the ground, I felt, and I've always felt that really. So uh um so it was clear that to be, to get through the 2019 election, um, so his job is one of mitigation of Corbyn while he's in the Labour Party. The famous Tom Watson rebellion doesn't happen, and Tom Watson pisses off, as he always was going to do, to do something else once he realised that, you know, his dreams were unlikely to be easily fulfilled. Um, uh, so he goes off and there is no other rebellion. Corbyn has to be seen out. The only way Corbyn's going to go is after a mega Labour defeat. And you know that's coming, especially after 2018. You distance yourself a fair bit from Corbyn on things like, you know, <clears throat> Skripals and Russia and stuff like that. Uh, you do your own thing over something like Brexit, etc., you go into the election trying to talk as little about Jeremy Corbyn as possible, but in effect, actually being one of the people who's trying to kind of sell it. Um, he has to go. You've then got to get the leadership, because if you don't get the leadership, you have nothing. And Rebecca Long-Bailey becomes the leader of the Labour Party. So you go in and you essentially you say the things you think you have to say just like people do at selection conferences up and down in order to get uh, elected. And then you set about purging the far left out of the party, which they help you immensely to do by being really stupid and giving you cause to do it at every point. Um, so what do we derive from that? Well, we don't necessarily derive what we think is Keir Starmer's actual um, set of policy beliefs. But I would be astonished if they were a million miles away from what you or I think sh uh, a realistic government should do. I really would be surprised. Um, give or take a trans issue or two. Which is quite clear, Labour... I mean, in a way, the SNP's done Labour a tremendous favour by showing them what lies down the end of that particular track uh, and so on. But I think Starmer already knew it. Um, and we do know essentially what he will do that the things that we think should probably happen you know strengthen public services um, uh, housing program and then underpinned by a kind of modern attitude towards how you procure growth etc in, in, 
in society and edging us but we don't say this closer and closer back to the european union because that's strategically what you have to do but you don't say it at the next election because to say it means that you give the tories an absolute free hit on you're going to have another referendum and nobody wants that so there's a mixture of the overt and the sotto voce. And of course, he's caught up in the middle of that, uh, really, because that's an awkward place to be. So everybody kind of says to him, um, we don't know what you stand for because you're in a position of transition. Um, you don't have any clear ideas. Well, actually, they put forward quite a lot of ideas, etc. But nobody cares about them because everybody cares about the trans issue and, you know, um, uh, and all that kind of thing. Although people do care deeply, obviously, about cost, cost of living. Um, the main thing that that Starmer has going for him at the next election, as oppositions do in this situation, is the fact that everybody thinks that the Tories are a shower and they've been in power too long and they've and their record is atrocious and it is, it just is. Look at it. I mean, so my feeling about Starmer is that he has. It's not new Labour because it's not as clearly defined um, and he hasn't got a new word for it. Um, but it is, in effect, the same thing, you know, slightly kind of updated, etc. cetera. Uh, it doesn't have, you know, that kind of lovely, handsome veneer that you had. I mean, you, one forgets easily just how handsome a man the young Gordon Brown was, for example. And, you know, when Gordon Brown was shadow chancellor, sometimes his evisceration of the Conservative chancellor at the time, I forget who it was, was Ken painful. Yeah. yeah, it was probably Ken Clark. But Brown was brilliant um, in the House. And this d d duo were hugely uh, dynamic. But that doesn't mean that they weren't subject to significant criticism before the 97 election. I mean, there's some mythology here, because one of the things that happens, if you get a landslide, all kinds of people who were predicting that you wouldn't suddenly discover that they always predicted you would. And it was all in them. It's, you know, it's the historian's fallacy, it's called, which is the belief that whatever happened was always regarded as inevitable. And it's not true. And, and has Starmer rehabilitated the Labour Party enough for you to vote for it? Oh, yeah. No, no, definitely. I mean, um, Corbyn, I, I needed the Corbynites out and to have lost power and for them to have been significantly purged. I mean, it sounds like a bad thing to say, doesn't it? But really, they belong in a separate party, in a different party, in a kind of, you know, one of those Ken Loach parties. Ken Loach has been a member of about, about five of these parties uh, and so on, and they belong in a kind of Ken Loach party. And in a, and in a proportional representation situation, a party like that would have 10% and, you know, a number of MPs. And that would be fair because that's, you know, they have a, they have a constituency. Um, the pr problem is we don't. Um, so I have no problem voting Labour at the next election, I don't imagine. I mean, they're going to disappoint me in certain kind of ways. I mean, classically, I want them to take a more moral tone on the question of refugees. They haven't been quite as bad as I was fearing that they would be over the question of refugees, because they weren't that great before. Um, but um, 
Uh, and there'll be a number of disappointments for me in things like that. But on critical things, I mean, like foreign policy, uh, Ukraine, Putin, etc. The party's been absolutely uh, solid. Um, uh, so I, I don't have a, I don't have a problem with that. If I was in a constituency where the Lib Dems more likely to win, I'd vote for them. I mean, the critical thing for our democracy is that the Conservatives get blasted out of power at the next election. But I just don't. I just don't think it's good for us to have they to have them uh, in power again. Why do you and, think if you know twenty nineteen is the ultimate example of this? If the centre ground is where the majority of the votes are won, where, where sort of most people are, in a way by definition, and election results tell us this, why was effectively you know the majority view? not uh, effectively on offer and, and why didn't effectively the Lib Dems has but really the only ones who were kind of trying to do that do better it almost felt like people like you and I were really in a minority oh, in we terms were. of political culture but but not out there in terms of what people wanted no. now you get this all the time so you get lots of people saying if you'd say we're politically homeless and we need a new home people say yeah um and so well the first thing obviously is Despite what Twitter feels like, by and large, people are more likely to tell you they agree with you than disagree with you. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, echo chamber kind of things. I mean, I have never, ever had somebody come up to me in the street and say, no, it only happened once, actually. It happened once, a long time ago, and say, I don't like what you write. The only people who ever come up to me in the street are people who say, I do like what you write. <laughs> Does that fool me into thinking that everybody likes what I write? No. Be a bit stupid, etc. I think people, some people do get that fooled. Um, you knew, I mean, I had people who said to me afterwards, I wanted to vote for Change UK or the Lib Dems, but or Luciana Berger for the she was standing for the Lib Dems, but the prospect of Corbyn getting in, I just couldn't stand it. So I, I just, you know, I held my nose and I voted for the Tories. And I had to say, well, okay, I understand that. I couldn't have done it myself, but I get it. You, you thought there was a binary choice. You had to make a choice, and in the end, this was this was the better of the two, the better of the two dreadful evils. So, and in our system, that is always going to happen. Change that system of proportional representation. We could have had. I think we could have had a twenty-five percent vote for a centrist party more. Once you know, if it was, if it had, if it had a chance, it would have been in part of a coalition with somebody, um, and some of the most talented people in politics would still be in politics. I mean, that's another issue, isn't it? Is is the recruitment of and 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 the shortlisting of candidates and the fast tracking of candidates in both the Tory Party and the Labour Party at the last election has left us with a House of Commons which still has talents in it. But there is a there is definitely a lower standard, and I know every generation says this, but it it really is noticeable. Um, when you think of some of those so-called red wall Tory MPs, you think of some of the Corbynista ones that are, that are still clogging up the Labour benches. Really, not particularly bright, and 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 really, maybe this is more important, not particularly pleasant. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, you know, actually, you know, not sure they wash. Um, <laughs> that's right. Their kind of personal hygiene is a kind of slightly suspect. Um, yeah, I, I mean, the problem, part of the problem is, I mean, you could, this is something you could easily put back to you and me, 
you know, why 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 have we never stood to be Labour candidates? Well, because it's be, well, because uh, having worked for various MPs, it, mm. it's a it, it became clear to me very early on it was a, actually a horrible job. There we go. It just so like, first, why would you do it? I mean, so I get first, why you would do it, but no way, no way. So the first thing that you've got to think. But were you ever tempted to stand? I, I actually no. <laughs> but, but when but when Neil Kinnock was uh, shadow education secretary, and I was just stopped being promised, I was president of the NUS, and he said to me, "You ought to become a candidate for the Labour Party." Um, and I knew one or two people who had. And I tried to imagine myself up before a selection meeting telling them what they wanted to hear. And I'm just useless at that. I can't do it. And there's some kind of dreadful, you know, Hitchens' letters to a young contrarian or whatever it was. Well, I, in that sense, I'm a contrarian. You put an argument to me and I immediately start thinking about why it might be wrong. I might end up thinking that you're right and so on, or it's like, but I, I start thinking about why that's likely to be wrong. The idea of finding out what a selection committee uh, group wants to hear and then saying the thing that they want to hear is anathema to me. <laughs> it's kind of... So, in addition to the things that you were talking about, which is just the sheer level of the work. Remember Oliver Letwin, I did a Radio 4 thing about this once. Remember Oliver Letwin talking about how a lot of his job was talking about to people who were complaining about how, how about how their drives had been tarmacked. And it was nothing to do with him. And I said, well, why don't you just tell them it's nothing to do with you? He said, oh, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. <laughs> you, you can't do that. Well, I thought, well, if you can't even tell people that what they're coming to you that you can't do anything about is something you can't do anything about, that's kind of pretty limiting, isn't it? <laughs> One way or another. Yes, but those those people with badly tarmac drives are, are potential voters. So well, there you are. I mean, but that's a partial answer to your question, really, <laughs> which is that there's increasingly there's kind of people like us who just can't see ourselves doing that. Um, it's quite interesting that somebody like Sunak or, or, or again, kind of Robert Jenry, make their pile or marry their pile before they go into Parliament. So they really have no financial worries again. Because if you want to live uh, a decent upper middle class life and try and ensure that, you know, one thing or other for your family, that's not the way to go. Mind you, increasingly, journalism is not the way to go either in that. You're not going to make money there either. Um, not a lot. But you have more fun. Well, yes, and and less responsibility. And and just thinking of your career now and and what lies ahead. Do you what what do you have a plan? Do you <clears> think <throat> right? I need to write a book every couple of years, <laughs> or do you pitch documentary series? I mean, how does it work? Well, actually, it's it's quite interesting because I don't really know yet. Um, I, it, I I've moved from a situation whereby my life my weeks were pretty predictable. And I knew what I was doing. To weeks when they're not. I mean, any deadlines that are created, apart from doing the BBC briefing room, which is a brilliant thing to do, and a lot, you know, I should be pretty happy with it. And I are, and I am. The we've just had the latest kind of download figures for it, and they're extraordinary. So you know, when you're doing a program that's taking off and so on, uh, 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 as it is, that's quite that that's quite good. But for the rest of it. 
writing a subset, I, there's no one to tell me to do it except me. And there's no one to tell me to do it when by except me or at what length except me. And that's very peculiar now. I mean, that's actually how Hitchens always wrote, I think. But um, and maybe that's the best way to write because it becomes a sort of, I don't know, it's a free form as comp- uh, as opposed to um, uh, something very, very, very an overstructured. So I was always in negotiation about what I'd be writing about because other people want to write about it or the desk thought, no, we've had a bit too much of this. Or I'd be dealing with the subterranean prejudices of the editor that I didn't even know about, but my common editor did. So, you know, things would get turned down. I wouldn't really know why, et cetera. And other things would, co- would, would come up. Um and now I can do whatever I want. I can do absolutely whatever I want. Um, and the result is quite pleasing. If you if you go on my Substack, I think it's not bad actually, and it's 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 a little bit more polemical. Um, it's a little bit more discursive. It's a little bit more risk taking. They can afford to be in in a kind of column. Um, and it's good fun to do, but the discipline of it. And the other thing, I have no idea whether it will make me any money. You know, I mean, the first signs were very good, but what you realise is that you get, you know, you get all your low-hanging fruit right at the beginning. And then everything else is a kind of painful accretion of, of uh, as I was saying earlier, of uh, uh, of subscribers and so on. And you just had the hope that eventually at some point, it becomes something that people talk about so that they tell other people about, etc. I mean, people are asked to subscribe to so much. I'm not surprised it's difficult to get people to subscribe for money. Well, the link will be in the in the in the blurb for this, and people can click on it and subscribe. So this will be a gateway, hopefully, to to millions of paying followers. This will be. A, <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what. I tell you what. If we get if we get, if we get twenty out of this, I will be really pleased. Okay, well, let's try and get twenty-one then. Let's try and exceed. Let's underpromise yeah, that. That, would be, that would be that would be brilliant, Matt. That really but would be brilliant. Do you uh, do you relish the freedom? Because um, you know, I work on various different things, and sometimes they're highly structured, and sometimes like that, it's basically up to me. And depending on what mood I'm in, I either think excellent, I like regular feedback, and I like uh, effectively uh, structure and time. Other times actually freedom petrifies me and i think yeah. you know in a way it's too much you know you you at least need someone to say write about this and then in a way it sort of gets the brain going i, mean, I don't know how you found that as an issue no i think I find, I find it exactly the same way i think that's absolutely the dilemma that you're in if you're on a roll if the ideas are coming kind of freely it's not kind of it's not a problem um i've got loads of ideas by the way um but then some of them are quite obviously going to take too long, et cetera. They're a bit too ambitious. So, um, so I think I think the problem is exactly the way you, you you kind of say it is. I mean, it's the the pleasures and problems of freedom. There it is, that wide world. I mean, look, you know, there is all these subjects and all these books. Every look at these books behind me. Every one of them took some poor sod three years to do. And here I go, just kind of. You know, and these are the ones I've kept. The ones I've thrown away also took some poor sod three years to do, etc. Almost everybody I know in journalism has sent me a book in the last year that they've written. I don't even have the time to read them all, let alone, you know, in a way to kind of decide to write one. I'm amazed 
by their capacity to solve the problem that you and I have just identified, which is what the f- am I going to write about? They've all solved it. And they're most of them, not all of them, by now, utterly disappointed with the results. Yeah, well, that's life, I guess. But <laughs> did you ever, or, or do you now have specific ambitions? Did you ever think, I want to write for The Guardian, I want to write for The Times, and you can have a sense that that is a, a, a thing ticked off? Do you think I want a, a book or whatever, you know, a, a TV series? I, I don't know how you would think of your own career in terms of success or achievement. No, the last, the last thing I can remember wanting to be as opposed to finding myself being it, was Michael Parkinson. I wanted to take over from Michael Parkinson and be a chat show host. I know. No, that was a I'm very sure long time ago, Matt. Uh, I don't think I would. And funny enough, I was his stand-in on Radio 2 for a while, um, for his Radio 2 show back in the late 90s. Yeah, yeah. Him and Jimmy Young stood in for both of them. And and were you any good at it? That's a really good question. I don't think it's one I can answer, actually. Uh, I was also tried out for Newsnight, but uh, Stephen Glover unkindly said in the mail that I looked like a rabbit caught in the headlights. I don't think that was true, actually, but uh, I was standing in at Newsnight. It was in 98. Just after a really good guy called Gordon Brewer had had one of those terrible meltdowns on camera when his autocue um, uh, failed. Did you ever want to do anything else? I guess is what I'm getting at. Did you ever, you know, obviously you were president of the NUS, you, you ruled out standing for office fairly early, but was it always journalism that got you going? Yeah, I mean, what I like most is saying, well, somehow, the thing which is the closest to the truth I think I can get it. Um, and also it engaging other people, if that kind of combination, that kind of combination of things. I mean, I've seen a lot of people talk about colonists are colonists because of this, that, and the other. Matt, Matthew Paris once said, you know, this is why people are colonists. And I thought, I looked at what he said, and I thought, no, none of those are the reasons that I'm a colonist, which just means that we have different kind of reasons and fallen into it. But, but I mean, we all want to communicate something um but that's about the kind of and want some degree of attention i mean part of me I, you 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 do you you do stand up that terrifies me absolutely bloody terrifies me i cannot imagine doing that i'd love to do it um uh but you know i, I can't imagine it. but there is a part of me which is really an actor monkey Really? Oh, yeah, no, no, definitely. Oh, God. There really is, except I've never been able to learn the lines. And, I mean, my most recurrent dream is that I'm about to present a really great television programme or I'm about to go on because uh, uh, I'm in a play or something like that, and I've forgotten everything. But like, learning lines is never the issue. This is the thing. It's the sort of thing that I think people who've not done a thing presume is going to be the most <laughs> nerve-wracking thing about it. And, actually, you just go over it so often that, Obviously, people still do forget their lines, but so what? What, what stopped you there? What, why did you never? Did you ever do any theatre at university or school? No, never. Never. Maybe it's it. just one of those nice fantasies that you never have to engage with. Yeah, 
essentially. But it's more about but there are other fan, nice fantasies which I could have, like be, being a dancer, which I've never kind of remotely, <laughs> which I've never really remotely wanted to do. Um, so what sort of dance? kind of so, sorry, what sort of dancer? What what kind of dancer do I not want to be? Yes. <laughs> well, that's a there's a broad category. How am I going to tell you any kind of dancer is what I do not want to be? And I'm so so clumsy. It's kind of ridiculous. The Times sent me off to have an hour's lesson with somebody once on the basis that they could teach anybody to dance. She gave up with me after 35 minutes. I just can't do it. I just can't do it. Um. So I would have liked to have done that. You know, I look at somebody like Stephen Colbert on the Late Show, and I think that's a fabulous kind of a job. Um, but what I've discovered is that I am pretty good at radio, um, and I like doing it. It's a very forgiving medium, um, as you know, um, largely because you can kind of read your script without anybody seeing. <laughs> Although these days that's difficult because they now insist on plonking a bloody camera into the radio studio, and it's all kind of ruined. Yeah, the mystique. Um, yeah. Um, so audio is great. So that kind of, no, I like the portfolio. I like, I like the writing. I like the radio. I like the kind of other things. What I'd really like to do now is to write a book so that I can go around the book festivals and they call me the author. I love that. I absolutely bloody love that. I just love being the author and going into the author's tent. You know, you're going to the author's tent. And they said, and and somebody comes over and says, "Would you like a cup of tea?" That's my kind of that's my idea of kind of professional heaven. Well, that's this, right. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, so the, the, you know, I, I, not that you were under any illusion uh, prior to me telling you, but it, it sounds like actually what you want is to be treated nicely and to be given <laughs> a cup of tea. If there was a way well, to do that without writing a book, maybe that's what. We need to figure out. No, I, I honestly, uh, actually, I've given the wrong impression. I'd really like to write the book. I just, or rather, I'd like the book to have been written. <laughs> well, you get it, don't you? I mean, right. Uh, firstly, you've got to get it through your agent. Then you've got to get it through your pub, uh, for, through a publisher. And then you've got to write the damn thing. And that is, books are so long. But then you kind of get the proofs back and it's done. And then if you're relatively, if you're still kind of quite well known, then the invitations come in to go to Dartington's and to go to... Hey. All this other place. If you had to go to Hay. And if you're really lucky, maybe Dublin will come on. And so will you come over to Dublin? Because that's always fabulous kind of going over somewhere like Dublin, as you know. Or Glasgow and Edinburgh and so on, all these other places. Or the Beverly Book Festival. Who even knew? But it's kind of wonderful. And Ilkley and Melrose, etc. I mean, all these kind of wonderful places. And they invite you and they, they put you up in a hotel or something like that. And they pay for your train travel. And I never really kind of understood those authors, but I suppose I should, who said, oh, they're not paying me for this. No, I'd pay them 50 quid a time to be able to do that. Oh, I shouldn't. No, don't. Yeah. Shouldn't it costs you a fortune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, fortunately, I don't think, you know, let's not tell them that bit. No. Well, David, <laughs> hopefully when your book is out, people in Hay, Ilkley, Dublin, Glasgow, Edinburgh, and all those other very special places you named will be able to come see you, buy you a cup of tea, Makes it sound like you're homeless. <laughs> Makes it sound like you just... You no, know. I just like... I just really enjoy those things. I mean, maybe they're kind of pathetic things to enjoy, Matt, but Not one of the things that's quite likely, if I do do any of those things, is I'll see you there. Well, that'd be great. Uh, yeah, wouldn't David, it? this has been an absolute privilege. Thank you. Bye now. Thank you. 
Well, there you go. David Aronovich. Maybe you will see David dancing or doing stand-up comedy at a book festival near you sometime soon. Um, but whatever book he brings out, I would absolutely read it. But you, in the meantime, subscribe to his Substack, davidaranovich.substack.com. If you can't be bothered to type that in, I'll put a link to it so you can just click on your phone or whatever device you're listening on to now. And we've got to get in more than 20, surely, more than 21. I mean, a few hundred or a few thousand would be nice, wouldn't it? So you all do it, and then you're getting great writing. And, you know, we've, we've proved to David that more than 20 people listen to this podcast. Um, so, yes, don't forget the future live guests. Uh, 22nd of May, David Blunkett. 5th of June, Philip Hammond. 19th of June, Margaret Beckett. 3rd of July, Joe Lysett. Loads more to be uh, announced, including in Edinburgh, where I'm interviewing Kate Forbes. And then um, on the 2nd of October, lead singer of the Sleaford Mods, uh, Jason Williamson. Um, I'll see you soon. Enjoy the coronation. And uh, I'll see you on the other side. Ta-ra. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.